Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. On February 8, 2022, a local undertaker was digging a grave in the cemetery at villers sur fer a small village in northeastern France near the Orc River, where the U.S. Army's 42nd Infantry Division pushed back German forces in 1918. At about four feet down, the undertaker unearthed human remains. He didn't know it at the time, but he'd found an American doughboy. To tell us more about the identification process and what we know about this soldier, we are joined by Michael G. Knapp, Director of Historical Services for the American Battle Monuments Commission. Thank you for joining us this morning. I'm happy to do it. So tell us a little bit about the discovery. Sure. So uh, as you pointed out, the caretaker of the cemetery in, in Villers-sur-Frère was preparing a new grave for a burial when he came across the remains. And obviously, the, he wasn't expecting to find anything there. And when he started to find some human remains, uh, along with some artifacts, uh, it was at that point that he reached out to uh, the French organization, uh, Office uh, Office National des Anciens Combattants, which is basically the National Office of Old Soldiers. And uh, it's kind of like our VA. Uh, he reached out to them. And at the same time, uh, they also contacted our cemetery, the Wazen American Cemetery, which is the closest one. I think it's about three kilometers away from there. And uh, reached out to the superintendent there, Bert Kalud. Uh, Bert's a uh, retired uh, Marine Corps Sergeant Major, and he's been with ABMC for many years. And so he came right over. And at that point, ONAC, uh, which is the French organization, uh, they reached out to an archaeologist that they've used in other circumstances where they've come across remains to do a, a basic an archaeological excavation of the grave site to see whatever whatever else they could recover. And in the course of that, they recovered partial remains and they recovered some artifacts, which were what we uh, used to kind of initially determine and to verify the identity of those remains as an American. So that's kind of the short story. Once they recovered everything they could from that site, they checked with the Commonwealth war graves just to verify that it wasn't anybody from uh, any of the British or Commonwealth countries from World War One. And they, uh, the French also took a look at that and and the, they didn't contact uh, any German organizations, but it was pretty evident that the, that they were would not have been German remains. So that's what got us to the point uh, where we sort of knew what we were dealing with. At what point does the American Battle Monuments Commission get involved with this process? Well, so it, this is really unique for us because, uh, you know, as you know, and many of your listeners may know, the ABMC doesn't really do active burials uh, at any of the World War One or World War II sites. And it's very rare that we would find remains that we would have to deal with, uh, especially for World War One. I. I think the most recent World War One American casualty that was recovered, I think, was in the early 90s. And the last one that was recovered and buried in an ABMC cemetery was in the 80s. So, you know, we're looking at almost half a century. So this is not something that we do every day. What led us to this was the fact that the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency, DPAA, which deals with all the World War II and, and later unknowns and recoveries, uh, their charter through Congress does not include World War I. And, and a lot of that, you know, they, they're the experts on that, and I don't mean to speak for them, but, but I think a lot of it has to do with the difficulty in tracing individuals so that you can find descendants so that you could do the DNA matching that they do. That's much easier, as you might imagine, uh, still 
still for World War II with descendants of, of only like the first order, if you will, you know, children or grandchildren. Whereas for World War I, that's getting harder all the time. So they really weren't involved and ABMC stepped up and basically said, you know, if this is a World War I American soldier, we need to do something about it. We can't just sit because who's going to take control? And that's kind of what got us to the point where we are. Now, the, I won't say it, it's a complication, but not. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. In order to bury anybody in an ABMC site, should that, ever, that occasion ever arise, permission for that has to come from the Secretary of the Army. ABMC maintains the sites, but we do not have the authority to unilaterally uh, bury someone there. So there was a an involved process where we had to do a lot of research in coordination with our uh, partners overseas uh, and internally to make a case to submit a request to the Secretary of the Army for permission to have these remains buried in, in uh, one of the ABMC cemeteries. So that's kind of what got us where we are. We did a lot of research to try and verify this beyond any sort of reasonable doubt that this was in fact an American service member. And I'd be happy to speak to that if you'd like. I would definitely like to talk about some of that research. As the MacArthur Memorial staff, we have been following this for quite a while. And I think when I saw some of the photographs of some of the artifacts that were recovered, to me, it was very obvious that this was probably American equipment. Could you tell us about some of these items that were found and how this helped establish the man's identity as an American? So right off the bat, when uh, when Burke Kalud was there uh, observing the uh, the archaeological dig, if you will, of the site, as the artifacts started coming out, it became readily apparent with some of them that this pretty much had to be an American. So just a, a brief recap for the listeners: uh, the some of the artifacts that were found were the uh, the remnants of a of a uh, steel helmet, what we would call the the M nineteen eighteen helmet. Uh, the British called it the Brody pattern, same helmet. So that was a first clue. There were remnants of gas mask, the uh, the small box respirator uh, that you commonly see, the big chest pack. There were some remnants of uh, items of that. There were a lot of cartridges in, uh, in stripper clips still, as they would have been in the cartridge belt. The belt itself was totally disintegrated, but the rounds were unfired. And upon uh, looking at those, you know, there were 30 caliber rounds, and so there were no other uh, belligerents that used a 30 caliber rifle. There were also some of the snaps from the cartridge belt pocket. Uh, and these were the early style that still had the, the eagle, uh, which is the same as what would be on the buttons of the tunic, the eagle snaps. So those, again, were American. Uh, there were remnants of a, a U.S. M1917 trench knife, which is a uniquely American item. We didn't supply those to anybody else. The other armies didn't use them. Uh, they had different designs. And in addition to that, a proliferation of the Model 1910 hanger. It's a little a twisty wire piece that allows different pieces of uh, equipment to be hung off of the Model Model 1910 cartridge belt. And, and these, again, are uniquely American because no one else used that type of web gear. Also, there was the remnants of an American aluminum identity disc, dog tag, and the shape and composition of that were are, are unique to the American forces as opposed to any of the other countries. Sadly, in this case, because it had been in contact with the ground, the aluminum had corroded. And anybody that's familiar with corrosion of aluminum, it doesn't rust per se, but it gets white and flaky and kind 
kind of layers off. And uh, that's what had happened. So there was no identifiable information on it. But again, its existence, its shape and, and composition clearly identified that this would be an American. So, you know, there were a lot of factors there. I think there were some pieces of the handle of a Model 1910 U.S. Army Canteen Cup. Again, unique things that no other country's allies or belligerents would have carried. So so to us right away, this basically said this, this was an American. What was interesting was the additional research that we did beyond that is the location. What's fascinating about this, and this, this really ties back into to the MacArthur Memorial and Museum, the location is basically mentioned in Father Duffy's book, Father Duffy's Story, I believe it's actually on page 308, where he talks about during the Battle of the Orc uh, that they they do some hasty burials just at the wall of the cemetery at Villa Chaffrere. And using that information, uh, one of the historians, uh, my colleagues on my team, uh, did some research at the National Archives, and we actually found Graves Registration Service maps that were done right at the end of the war that listed a lot of the different locations where these temporary burials and other burials were through the course of the war. And of course, these were used to recover remains when we did the consolidation and then the ultimate creation of the final eight World War I cemeteries and the repatriation of the remains that the families wanted sent back. So that corresponded exactly with what Duffy was talking about. And that's what's allowed us to make, I think, a very, very strong conjecture that this individual was, in fact, uh, from the 42nd Division and more than likely from, what is it, the 165th that Duffy's in, uh, the, the 69th Regiment, yes. New York becomes, I think, the 165th. Yes. So there's, yeah, in my opinion, there's an incredibly strong likelihood that this individual was from the 165th. Can't there's? I don't know that there's any way that we could prove that, but I'll, I'll go to my grave pretty certain that that's <laughs> that's the connection here. But but that was a lot of the research that was done to really verify that this was an American. And uh, you know, there's just there's a lot of really circumstantial evidence that that point to that. So that's kind of where we landed at on that. So you have the material culture, you have the historical documentation that seems to indicate an American. With all of that and the fact that we have an idea that members of the 42nd Division, which I have to say was the division that Douglas MacArthur was part of, but these men were killed in that area, temporarily buried there. Do you think we'll ever be able to narrow down the identity of the soldier past just being an American? Would DNA testing be a possibility if you could narrow down potential identities? Or would some sort of geospatial tool like isotopic analysis be a possibility? I give that a strong maybe. Uh, I, I'm clearly not a scientist and, and not a forensic scientist. I do know there was initially some discussion about trying to do some DNA, and I know that they had our agency, they, me, us, uh, not me, but our agency had, had in fact reached out to the folks at Ancestry that do the Ancestry DNA. And I, I don't know how far that got. I don't know whether they actually were able to get a sample that could provide usable DNA or not. So that's kind of an open-ended question. And I don't, I don't want to speak specifically to it because I wasn't deeply involved in it other than I know that there were those conversations initially. Um, I will say that the remains that were recovered were partial remains, so it was not a full. It was not a full body. Uh, far from it, and that uh, you know, there's conjecture on that as to you know whether that was just decomposition, 
whether there were a full set of remains initially buried. And the other possibility that comes up is it's possible when the GRS was exhuming all the bodies to, to bring to the concentration cemeteries for the final disposition program following the war, it's possible that they got some of this person and assumed that's all there was. So, you know, we don't really know I think to your question, I think if one were willing to go through a lot of records in different venues, and I don't think it would be impossible, but it would be a a time-consuming project, you could potentially, if you went enough through enough different sources of records to compile lists and cross-references, you could possibly narrow down uh, the casualties that were sustained in those days fighting on the orc. You could hopefully find some records that might address who was recovered, and then you'd have to cross-check that against, you know, who was repatriated, who was buried in our cemeteries, and it might narrow down the list of potential individuals. So I think if somebody had the time and and the uh, the resources, they could possibly narrow down who it was. But as I say, the larger concern that I have would be, especially given the you know, what went on during World War One and and in the subsequent recovery operations, it is possible that maybe some of, you know, this may be partial remains that match some other partial remains. I don't think you could ever discount that. But having said that, I do think if if one were dedicated enough to do the, the you know, all the, the disparate research and the cross-checking and everything, you might be able to narrow the pool of candidates. I don't, I don't think you'll ever be able, short of, of if there were DNA available to do, that you'd ever be able to definitively identify the individual. And, and frankly, um, that is really one of the strong points that, that allowed him to be, uh, or will allow him tomorrow, in fact, to be buried um, in, in Wazen is, uh, according to the, the burial program after both wars, uh, those individuals who were unidentified, obviously, if you didn't know who they were, you couldn't reach to the family for a decision on, on burial or repatriation. So they become uh, uh, unknowns that are buried in our sites. That's kind of a long and circuitous answer to could we ever identify them? I think that the short answer is probably not with any degree of certainty. So you mentioned that the remains recovered were partial. Did they indicate a combat death or is that unclear? I think it's unclear. From what I was able to see, there are some vertebrae uh, and some ribs and some small bones. And I, I think what's interesting, you know, and I, again, I'm, I'm going into the, the realm of conjecture here, so bear that in mind. But uh, one of the other things that was interesting in terms of artifacts that were discovered with the remains was one of the spreader bars from a stretcher. And if you think about a, you know, a stretcher, it's that canvas with the two sticks on either side. When you open it out, there are two metal bars at either end that lock into place that hold it open. And, and you know, that's the same from then until today. You still make them that way. So they found one set of those from one end of a stretcher in in with all the other artifacts. And um, that's kind of unusual. You wouldn't necessarily do that. So I think that leads to a couple of possibilities. Um, One is that uh, this was an individual who was injured or, or outright killed by shell fire, whether whether artillery or mortar or something of that nature that may have caused some sort of catastrophic injury. And so the remains were on a stretcher, and it may have been they decided to just bury everything in situ. So that's one possibility. A second possibility, uh, which also, if you if you read a little bit about Duffy's book, is entirely likely, uh, is that this may have been somebody that was wounded 
and, and was on a stretcher and then was, you know, hit with artillery or something. Right. That's possible. But there's also the possibility that it was just, you know, it just somehow ended up there and was buried anyway and had nothing to do with this guy specifically. I think given Duffy's narrative of the burials that he conducted, I think it's it's fairly certain that this was a combat death. What what the circumstances of that are, we don't know. There just there weren't enough to see anything. There weren't any remains found that you know. It, it wasn't like there was a skull that indis- indicated a, a catastrophic uh, you know head injury. Um, and due to the the fact that this body had been in the ground for over a hundred years and probably was, if anything, wrapped in either a shelter half or a blanket, there was nothing to. Pre- protect any of the soft tissue or anything that would then give a clue as to, you know, what happened here. And, you know, unlike in the the TV police forensic shows, you know, there, you know, nobody could, there was nothing to x-ray to find a bullet sitting somewhere and they didn't find any loose bullets or anything. So, um, so, you know, it, it's speculation as to, to what caused it, but but given the fact that it's a temporary cemetery that was established during operations rather than in a rear area at a hospital or field hospital or some other place like that, I think it's probably highly likely. Additionally, the fact that there are uh, remains of artifacts that are associated with being in combat, the cartridge belt, the gas mask, helmet, these kinds of things. If somebody had gone to a, a casualty clearing station, they'd gone to a dressing station or a temporary field hospital or someplace like that, those items would have been removed and they wouldn't have been buried with the individual. So I think, again, circumstantially, that tells us that that this is somebody that died during active combat operations in an active combat role of some sort. But again, you know, we can't prove that. But I think circumstantially, it supports that position. Historical detective work is always fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Uh, Yes. So... This unknown soldier will be buried with full military honors at the Wazane American Cemetery on June 7th, 2023. And today we're recording on June 6th, 2023. So what can you tell us about this upcoming event? I'll tell you what little I do know about it, just because things are changing and evolving. And as you point out, with today being June 6th, the majority of our agency is dealing with D-Day 79 and then heading, heading uh, uh, east for this. But uh, as I understand it, there will be, uh, well, first off, the uh, General McConville, the, the uh, Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army, will be there. We don't know definitively if other dignitaries that are currently at the D-Day ceremony will be coming, uh, whether the General Milliage, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs will be coming. We don't know. I suspect that there will be more, but General McConville definitely will be there, I think, as the senior officer for the ceremony. Uh, It's my understanding that troops from the 173rd Airborne Brigade out of uh, Vicenza, Italy, will be coming over uh, as part of the 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 military people that will be there. There is a contingent, I believe, from the Old Guard, the 3rd mm-hmm. Infantry at Fort Myer that do the ceremonial burials at Arlington. I do believe there is uh, probably a casket team coming uh, from Fort Myer for that. There will be a lot of French representatives. I'm not sure to what level uh, they will be there, but it it will be basically a, a full military honor funeral, such as you would see at any of the uh, uh, national cemeteries uh, 
like Arlington. Uh, beyond that, I'm not really sure of a lot of the details because I think a lot of that has still been hammered out, you know, this week. And since I'm not over there, I don't know what, uh, you know, what changes have occurred. But uh, it's going to be live streamed. I would say if anybody's interested, if they follow ABMC on Twitter or Facebook, uh, they could check the links there. There'll be information on the live streaming of that event tomorrow and they'll be able to see all that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm happy to. I'm, I'm all, always happy to talk about history, even more so to talk about World War I history. And I, I think I would just say that uh, while this may not be a once-in-a-lifetime event, it's certainly certainly a rare uh, occurrence uh, for ABMC and uh, for anybody that's interested in World War One, And especially, again, you know, given MacArthur's ties as chief of staff of the 42nd Division in World War One, anybody that's interested in MacArthur, this is this is one of the soldiers that uh, that served under him. And this this should certainly be very interesting to them. But thank you again for the opportunity to speak with you about this and to, to highlight uh, the great work that ABMC has done for 100 years. And this is our centennial year. And as we go into our second century, I I think it's important to point out that the service that, that we strive to provide to ensure that, uh, in Pershing's words, time will not dim the glory of their deeds, uh, that that continues, and it will continue into our next century. So this is just another example of, uh, of how that will happen. So thank you again so very much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.